Okay, as we come before God's word again together, let's just, just bow our hearts one more time. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, your word itself reminds us that the things that were written aforetime are there for our learning. That, Lord, we through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that as we look at these accounts of things that took place to us, Lord, what seems like such a long time ago, Lord, help us see the relevance of it, the way that these things speak to us right now. Because, Lord, your word is living and powerful and speaks into our lives. And so, Lord, help us also to be open to your word. Lord, not to have preconceived ideas or, Lord, anything that would stop you speaking to us. So, Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive. Lord, take my words now and use them for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we're continuing our journey through Second Kings. And... Last week I was hoping to get on to the chapter we're going to look at to start with this morning, but we didn't. We had more to cover and that was, I'm sure, of the Lord. Because this session this morning is just one of hope. It's strange because actually we'll look at it and we'll see, we're going to look at one of the the worst kings, in fact, probably the worst king in Judah's history. And yet there's a wonderful twist at the end of this that we'll look at in a moment. Now, last time we were looking at Hezekiah. Great king, a king that we're told followed after David in his ways. And it's not just talking about the things that he did, it's talking about the attitude of his heart as well. Really, really good king who loved the Lord, faced with these incredible challenges. Remember that the Assyrian army are all camped outside, ready to defeat and destroy him. They've defeated everybody else, and in the midst of that he gets sick as well. And then Isaiah comes and says, by the way, king, you're going to die. You know, it doesn't get worse than that in our kind of problems that we experience in life. Everything seems to be going wrong at once. And as I was just kind of reviewing and putting the notes up on the web during the week for this, it really hit me because one of the things that we're told is that Hezekiah turns toward the wall. And I thought... Is that just Hezekiah sulking? Because that's not typical of anything else we see of him. I looked in the, um, on the computer to check, and the, looking at the, the Hebrew word, and the word for wall can also be translated as town or city. And I thought, how interesting. You know, I think what Hezekiah did, as he's given this news, remember the Assyrians camped outside. As he turns towards the wall, I don't think he's just rolling over in his bed and looking face at a stone wall and sulking and pouting. I think what he was doing was looking at the city, thinking, what's going to become of my people? What's going to happen? And I think that's why he was pleading for those extra years. And of course, God gives him this wonderful promise, which answers both of those things. Yes, his life will be spared, will be extended by 15 years. But also, God would give him this great deliverance. And we looked at that last time, how quite possibly that deliverance came from the Shekinah glory shining out of the temple. And it was that light that caused the shadow to move back up those steps. As I showed you last time, a lot of people get into all sorts of conjecture about how could that shadow move, and they ask, could the sun move, or all sorts of other things. You know, the only thing you need to move a shadow is a greater light. And I believe that's what God gave as this wonderful sign, as God's glory shone out. And we know, of course, from Thessalonians, that it's the glory, the brightness of Jesus that will consume Antichrist when he returns. Any coincidence? Possibly not. So... In this extra 15 years, we find that certainly after three years, Hezekiah has a son called Manasseh. And we're going to be looking now at his reign. Uh, and uh, just incredible that such a godly king can have a son that just goes off the rails. 
Uh, just, just so much. But we'll see that the seeds that were clearly sown early in Manasseh's life were not wasted. And there's great hope for us in that as well. Um, Manasseh has the longest reign of any of the kings of Judah, reigned for 55 years. And then when he's 45 years old, he has Ammon, his son, who eventually will reign just for two years. And then he has a son, uh, Josiah, who will reign um, for 31 years. Um, and just this incredible king, Josiah, we'll look at that briefly as we go through. So let's just jump straight into the text and we'll uh, go from there. So we read chapter 21 of Second Kings. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. Now that's just a, a worrying thought, isn't it? You know... I've got daughters. Um, I was talking to Pete the other day. We were moving some rubble and rubbish together. Um, talking about the difference between sons and daughters. I don't have any sons. Um, but it seems that sons have a little bit more energy at times. And can you imagine giving a 12-year-old son the keys to your car? Well, this 12-year-old son is given the keys to the kingdom. You know, and clearly he hasn't got the experience necessary to reign well. We were told that he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was um, Hephzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal, and made a grove, as did Ahab the king of Israel, and worshipped the host of heaven and served them. What a shame that this king is now compared to Ahab. We spent quite a while when we were looking at first kings at Ahab. And what a wicked king he was, and of course, um, motivated, encouraged in part by Jezebel, his wife. But Ahab is one of the worst kings uh, of the lot. And yet we find that Manasseh now is compared to Ahab. That's not a good thing. And again, worshipping the host of heaven, we've said before, these high places that they worshipped were simply so they could get a good vantage point of the stars. They'd get to the high uh, point on a hill or a mountain. Uh, that's why they had these these places. Now, some of the kings used them for the worship of the Lord. But of course, we see that so often going on, mixing the worship of God with pagan worship. Uh, we find that if you look at church history, back in about 300 AD, when Christianity suddenly is legalized, you see for the first 300 years, Christians were not particularly popular. They were put on the same bill as the lions in the Colosseum, and they were persecuted and driven wherever they would you know, flee to, because the, the Romans just saw them as being a pest, as a nuisance and so on. The Jews just wanted to get rid of them. But suddenly Constantine comes along and he legalizes Christianity. And it was one of the worst things that could have happened because suddenly we have this merging of Christianity and paganism. You know, as I said before, you look around, and particularly in this country and, and throughout Europe, really, you find these wonderful, ornate buildings that are called churches. Where did they come from? Where did that instruction come from from Scripture? Do you read anywhere in the Bible that we should build lavish, ornate buildings? Now see, that's what happened when we merged Christianity and paganism. And the Christians started to use the pagan buildings, the pagan uh, temples and so on. And again, this is just history. You can look into this and see yourself. And so, Hezekiah here, this good king, destroyed these altars. Manasseh, now his son, is starting to rebuild them all again. Getting back into uh, idolatry and pagan worship. And we're told that he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. This is a horrible thing to behold, because this is the place that God had reserved for himself. Well, let's just bring this a little bit closer to home. Because what about your heart? What about your life? That's the place that God would have reserved for himself. And how often do we allow 
altars to be put in our own hearts. Things that are really worshipping another God. Maybe materialism, success, finance, whatever else. And those things become as gods to us. And we put those temples, so those altars in that place, in that temple that God has said should be reserved for him. You see, this is history, but you see how directly it speaks about us and our own lives. Verse 6, we're told, And he made his son to pass through the fire, which was a pagan practice and ritual, observed times used enchantments, and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. You know, it's, it's amazing still that you get some Christians that think horoscopes are fine, it's not a problem. That things like yoga is okay, and they'll go all sorts of things that, yeah, you know, well, it doesn't hurt, it's not harmful. You know, every position in yoga is a prayer to a false god. You know, there's a lot of danger in these things. It's idolatry. We're told of Manasseh that he wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Not a good thing to do. And he said, a graven image of the grove that he had made in a house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. And so now Manasseh putting a, a graven image right in the house of the Lord. Kind of brings a little bit of what's going to happen, doesn't it, with Antichrist. Because he'll do exactly the same thing. He will put his own image in the temple. And he'll have people worship it. Verse 8 carries on. Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave to their fathers. This is again what God was saying, that he chosen Israel, chosen Jerusalem. Neither would he make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers. But then look, only if they will observe to do all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. Back at the beginning of this year, we spent three weeks looking at the promises of God. And there are some promises of God that are unconditional. One of them being the land grant to Israel. One being that there would be a descendant of David to sit on the throne of Israel forever. One of them being your salvation, my salvation. If you're saved, you are saved. We're told that Jesus speaks of us having eternal life. If it's eternal life, you can't ever lose it. Because if you could lose it, it wouldn't be eternal life in the first place. Now we've been given this great promise of eternity. And so many other promises in the word of God. That are unconditional. And we praise God that he's a God that delights in keeping his covenants and keeping his promises. But there are also a number of promises that we find that are conditional. And we see that throughout Psalms particularly. Blessed is the man that, and then we're given the conditions. You know, we can all avail ourselves of those blessings if we follow the instructions that are given there. Well, this was another one of those instructions that God had given. That Israel would be blessed, they would stay in the land if... They observed his commandments and kept the law. But God had said back in Deuteronomy 28 and elsewhere that if they disobeyed, then they would be cast out around the nations of the world. In fact, Deuteronomy 28 will make a really interesting study at this point to look at how that whole chapter progresses. It starts with about 15 verses of blessing. The rest of the chapter, and it's a fairly long old chapter, is dealing with the cursing. You see, you don't need to be told much about the blessing. You know, we, re- we resonate quite quickly with God saying, you're going to be blessed, this is going to be good. You know, the fruit of your land and, and everything else, you'll be blessed, you'll prosper. But then, God says, if you disobey me, 
Then he lists all the things that will come upon them. And it gets progressively worse. And we see that played out through Israel's history. That God did allow nations to come and attack them. Take away the produce of their land. That's why Gideon is in hiding in the wine press. Because he was frightened of the Midianites. Because they were coming into the land and raiding the land and taking anything that they wanted. So we see that promise from Deuteronomy 28 fulfilled. But then also we find the northern kingdom taken captive. And now we're about to see the southern kingdom of Judah taken captive. But Judah, of course, only for a time, for 70 years. But then ultimately we get to the time of Jesus and just shortly after was AD 70. And Jerusalem are, or Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans and Israel are forced to flee around the world as we've seen to this day. But God also said that he would gather them and bring them back to their land. A promise that sadly a lot of the church seems to miss. So these promises, again, conditional promises. And God saying that I had promised, if you obeyed, that your feet would never move out of the land. But now, we go on verse 9, but they hearken not. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. It's sad, isn't it, sometimes that God's people can do things that are far worse than the world. The world we would expect to do things that are bad. And yet sometimes God's people can do some horrible things. And the Lord's, and the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets saying, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations and has done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever hears of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem, the line of Samaria, and the uh, plummet of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Very graphic description that God is giving of this judgment he'll bring. And I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become as a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Because they have done that which was evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came forth out of Egypt. Even unto this day. There's an interesting portion we read in Ezekiel. Where God speaks of a a good man turning from his sin, then his sin won't be remembered. But then he speaks of a a good man that then gets into sin, and says that his deeds will be remembered. And it's interesting that God here goes right the way back to the really the birth of the nation when they came out of Egypt. You see, if you look at the good kings, God doesn't go back and start talking about all the the evil and all the things they provoked him to since leaving Egypt. See, that wasn't remembered. But now with Manasseh. God requires account of that which is past, as Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes. Verse 16, moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood. We'll come back to that in just a moment, just read the rest of the verse. Very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, beside his sin, wherewith he made uh, Judah to sin in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. So on top of everything else, we're told that he shed innocent blood. This is the blood of the righteous. This is those who were godly. Those who no doubt were standing up and saying to Manasseh, this is not right. You shouldn't do this. See, God holds very dear the blood of his saints. 
you know, it's um, believed that uh, Isaiah was actually sawn in half by Manasseh. So tradition has it. Uh, certainly in the book of Hebrews we have reference to that. But in, interestingly, in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, we read there of the martyrs who are before the throne in heaven. And they cry out to God and say, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And the Lord says, Just a little while longer, until all those who are going to die as you have died, have died. Then, we find in Revelation 16, the first six verses. In fact, it's worth just turning to that. Let's just turn to that now. If you've got your Bibles with you, just turn to Revelation chapter 16. Because you start to see in the, the latter part of the tribulation, as we have recorded in Revelation, how God just pours out his wrath in full measure. And at the beginning of this seven-year period that is yet to come, God brings judgment, but it's restrained judgment. And it's during that time that these martyrs are crying out, Lord, when will you avenge our blood? Well, we get to Revelation 16 and we read, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man. And every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and was and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. You see, we have this angel that kind of steps in at this point and makes a declaration that God is righteous. In the midst of this judgment, which just seems vile and no pun intended, it's a really horrible picture that's painted of what's going to happen. And it'd be very easy to look at that and say, but surely that's not really fair. And then this angel steps forward. Is it just five? Again, John's saying, and I heard the angel of the water say, this is almost justifying God in a sense. Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and was and shall be, because thou hast judged us. Lord, you are right to do what you've done, because. And suddenly brought into view is all of the saints that have, whose blood has been shed throughout the ages. And God brings his judgment upon the world. Now, those here in Jerusalem at the time of Manasseh will be amongst those. But many others throughout history. How many lives of Christians have been taken unjustly by Brutal dictatorships and governments that care nothing for the things of God. You know, it's almost a a daily occurrence now we hear of Christians being killed in various parts of the world simply because of their faith. And we have a world that's supposedly pushing for tolerance. It's tolerant of everything except Christianity, it seems. As I said, Isaiah believed to have been one of these martyrs, uh, referenced in Hebrews 11.37. He speaks of those who were sawn asunder. Verse 17 carries on. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sin that he sinned, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah. And Ammon his son reigned in his stead. But that's not the end of the story. That's the account we have 
in 2 Kings. And as I said already, 2 Kings predominantly focuses on the northern kingdom. So if you look, certainly 1 Kings, 2 Kings, it's very much the account of the northern kingdom. Now that's gone into captivity, so all that's left here is the southern kingdom. So we're just getting a brief overview. When you look at First and Second Chronicles, you get the perspective from the southern kingdom. And so you'll find more details there about the southern kings, including Manasseh. Let's just look at some of this text. This is from Second Chronicles chapter 33. And just reading into it, verse 9. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err, and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Wherefore, and this is something now that we didn't have in the king's account. Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, and bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. Now at that time Babylon was still under the sway of Assyria. Assyria hadn't yet fallen so the Syrians make this incursion into Israel. You know, they've, they've been defeated last time. But now, however many of them come, the king of Assyria certainly comes and takes Manasseh and carries him away captive to Babylon. It's, <laughs> the idea, again, is that he was, he was led, just as the um, Assyrians had been doing previously, um, leading people by sewing them together in chains and so on. We talked about that. And when he was in affliction, and this is of Manasseh, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Why is it that human beings wait until we are in affliction before we cry out to God? So often, even in our own lives, even as Christians, you know, we're told, seek first the kingdom of God and then everything else. What do we do? We seek first everything else, we deal with all the problems, all the things we have to deal with in life, making sure that we're paying the gas bill or credit cards or all the other things that seem to come upon us. And then we go to God right at the end, when we're really in a predicament and we desperately need his help, when it's kind of a, unless God comes through, there's no tomorrow kind of situation. It's so sad, you know, we should be going to God, as I said earlier on this morning, you know, God is a loving Father and he wants us to go to him, to bring our request to him. I would, as a father, be grieved in my heart if one of my daughters was in need and she went to all sorts of other people and places first before she came to me. I want her to know that she can come straight to me. Well, how do you think God feels? He wants us to go to him first, not last. But Manasseh here, when he's in affliction, suddenly comes to his senses. He realizes that the things of this life really are not quite so good as he maybe had thought or wanted them to be. And the important thing here is that he humbled himself. In fact, he says he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And prayed unto him, and was entreated of him, and heard his supplication, and brought him again to Jerusalem. I mean, what a miracle this is. You know, I don't know any other account where Assyria came, and they took somebody, and they deported them to another land, and then they were allowed back again. We don't read that of any other account of the Assyrians. But Manasseh, by God's grace, was allowed to go back to the land. And then look at this wonderful sentence. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. 
what a learning curve this man had gone on. For the best part of 55 years of his reign, just doing everything to provoke God to anger, worshipping pagan deities, putting an image into the temple, an altars into the temple, killing righteous people. But now, at the end of his life, because of this situation that the Lord allows upon him, we read, then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. You know, there's a portion in Corinthians where we're told Paul speaking about some of the issues that the Corinthian church face. And he says about this particular one individual, hand such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved. You see, sometimes people that are intent on playing around with the world, the best thing for them is to let them have at it. And God says, don't allow that kind of thing to exist in your church. Move those things out of the fellowship. Because otherwise it can infect the whole body. But you know, it's also loving and kind to do such a thing. Because it will bring people to their senses. If somebody is genuinely saved, and they still want to play around with the world, the best thing is coming to that realisation that the world is not what they thought it was. As I said before, you know, people always like to chase the bright lights of the city. Friday night, I was walking back down Regent Street on the way back to the station uh, after a long day at work. And there's loads of people out on the streets of London. It was a fairly nice, relatively mild evening. And there's people milling around everywhere. All the pubs were overflowing and people outside and people drawn to the bright lights. But you know, what hope do they have? What future do they have? You know, really, it was just very sad to look and, and see. Sometimes... You walk through the streets of London and you meet a a group of Christians that are out there witnessing. And that's always wonderful because sometimes you get to stop and chat with them and encourage them. But I didn't see anybody out as it happened on Friday. But just this world that is so wrapped up in itself and pleasure and, and so on. Well... After all of the the searching that Manasseh had done, he comes to this realisation that God really is God. He's the Lord. And then we read, now after this he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entering in at the fish gate, encompassed it about uh, Ophel and raised it up a very great height and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. And he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people did sacrifice still in the high places, yet unto the Lord their God only. You see, once again, people are often prepared to put away certain things, but they still want to worship God in the way that they want to worship God. That's not the way it works. We don't get to choose, in that sense, how we worship God. We can't worship God alongside other things. As Chuck Misler often has said, you know, God is not number one on a list of ten. God wants to be number one on a list of one. We should worship God only. And the people, again, go part way. But they still keep these other things. These high places remain. It's almost like a, a backup, just in case God fails them. And then we read verse 18. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer unto God and the words of the seers that spoke unto him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. 
Now, again, we've looked at King's account. We're not given so much detail of the prophets that spoke to him. And I just think that's interesting as well, because there is a mention here that the seers, the prophets, have spoken to him. You know, we don't know who or what was said. And sometimes the things that you may say as a, a way of encouragement to somebody else, they may not get published, people may not hear them, but it's so important that you encourage each other, that you give godly advice and share wisdom with each other. You know, I firmly believe that God is the one who directs each of our paths and sometimes Christians like to overstep the mark and try and give another believer direction as to how they should live their lives or do things and often it's just an attempt to convert them to your point of view. That's not what we're told we should do. But we are told, and again, by now you probably know one of my favourite verses in Scripture, Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfil the law of Christ. Here, these, these seers, these prophets. You know, what was it like for them? Knowing that other righteous people have been put to death, no doubt for speaking their mind, for saying what they felt God was telling them to say. But some of them clearly had the boldness and the compassion to speak to Manasseh. Those things had stayed with him. And now at the end of his life, as he turns back to God, we have a mention here of those individuals. or a testimony. His prayer also and how God was entreated of him and all his sin and his trespass and the places wherein he built high places and set up groves and graven images before he was humbled. Behold, they are written among the sayings of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his father, fathers and they buried him in his own house and Ammon's son reigned in his stead. Now I just want to give you a bit of encouragement here because if you've got children that don't know the Lord, but if you brought them up to know the Lord... Well, that's exactly what we've got here. Somebody who grew up in a a family environment with a king who was so godly, who loved God. And at the end of his life, he comes back to God. It takes a supernatural work of God, but doesn't it always? Didn't it it with us when we came to know the Lord? And all of those things, those early years, what a difference. So we read of his son Ammon, who was 22 years old when he began to reign. He reigned two years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name... It was uh, Meshulimeth, uh, the daughter of Haraz of Jobah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh did. Sadly, his son hadn't learned these lessons. And he walked in all the ways that his father walked in, and served the islands that his father served, and worshipped them. And he forsook the Lord God of his fathers, and walked not in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him, and slew the king in his own house. And the people of the land slew all them that had conspired against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his stead. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in the sepulchre in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah, his son, reigned in his stead. So let's just go quickly, look at Josiah. He was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jediah, the daughter of Adiah, of, you can mispronounce these at home later if you want to, um, Boscath. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. What a lovely statement that is, of Josiah, this young eight-year-old child. You know, for the first few years of Josiah's life, his granddad, Manasseh was king. In fact, for the first six years. You know, and it's incredible because you realize the impact 
that his granddad had had on his life. You know, he's probably seen his own dad for two years reigning and then being killed, a wicked king. And thinking of the way that his granddad had been. You see, Josiah probably didn't know anything of Manasseh's wickedness. Maybe things he'd heard or even had recorded or had read, read to him or whatever. But he didn't see any of that. He just saw Manasseh as a humble, repentant man. And I just want to encourage you, if you're a grandparent, to sow into the lives of your grandchildren. I've said before that my Grand, my mum's mum, was such a massive influence on me. You know, I used to get home from school and mum used to give me the newspaper. I used to walk down the road to where my grand lived and go and see her to give her the newspaper. And grand would sit me down and she'd read to the Bible to me and she'd read to me from Oswald Chambers and she'd just talk to me about things of God. And I remember she used to have a picture of Israel up on a wall, which is kind of a photograph. And she always used to say to me, do you know what's going to happen? And she'd point to the Dome of the Rock and she'd talk about Islam. And this was way back in the day. But she was sowing these seeds in my heart. And just speaking to me about how God had been faithful. And what an influence she was to me. You know, and as grandparents, you can be the same kind of influence to your grandchildren. So never give up. Never think it's too late. Manasseh, unfortunately, never got to see the good fruit of the things he sowed. He saw much of the bad stuff come to fruition, of course, but he never really got to see the good fruit of young Josiah, who becomes one of only five good kings. Going looking at the kings of Judah, King Asa was a good king, although fell a bit towards the end. Jehoshaphat, again, another good king. Joash, back here, was a good king. Hezekiah and Josiah. They're the only good kings, really, that are mentioned throughout the history of the kings. But Josiah's got his name on that role. And how much of that is attributed to the way Manasseh lived his final days. It's never too late to serve God. And, you know, we prayed this morning and we said already that that wonderful verse from First John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How much of that Manasseh knew back then before the cross, we don't know. But you know, for us, it's never too late to turn around and to walk with God. It came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered of the people. And let them deliver it to the hand of the doers of the work, that have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the doers of the work, which is in the house of the Lord, to repair the breaches of the house, unto the carpenters, the builders, the masons, to buy timber and huge stone to repair the house. So it's just basically this repair mission uh, that Josiah sets down to try and rebuild the temple. Howbeit, there was no reckoning with, made with them of the money that was delivered into their hand because they dealt faithfully. What a testimony that is to have recorded in God's word forever that you dealt faithfully with that which God had given you. Can you say that? Can I say that? Well, these men, forever in God's word, it's recorded that they dealt faithfully with what God had given them. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I found a book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and read. he read it. 
This, of course, would be a copy of the Torah. Long since been forgotten by the nation. Shepherd the scribe came to the king and brought the king word and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered into the hand of them that do the work and have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shep and the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest had delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass that when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikim the son of Shaphan and Achbor the son of uh, Micaiah the son, and Shaphan the scribe and Ashiah, a servant of the king, saying... Go and inquire of the Lord for me. And for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according unto all that is written concerning us. You see, if you remember back in Deuteronomy, as Moses is giving his kind of three sermons which really make up the book of Deuteronomy, one of the things he says is that the kings, when they come to the throne, should read a copy of this law. So they would know how to be good kings. Well, clearly that hadn't been happening. And no doubt, Josiah read that passage in Deuteronomy 28. Speaking of the judgment that God would bring on them for their iniquity. And as he's reading, he's suddenly seeing, this is us. This is, this is my kingdom now. You know, the word of God is just like that. It's, it's a mirror that kind of reflects who we really are. Interestingly, in the time of the the wilderness wanderings uh, when they built the tabernacle the ladies gave up all of their mirrors the bronze mirrors that they had and they melted those down they were made into the laver this big bath in a sense that was used for for washing and cleansing and it's interesting that this laver symbolically represents the word of god and we can join the dots some other time but the, the the laver was basically one big mirror it would just reflect And that's just what the word of God is to us. It reflects who we really are. And Josiah reading this now, realizing just the the real predicament of the condition they were in. Even though he was a godly king. And we read, so Hilkiah the priest and Ahikim and Akbor and Shaphan and Ashiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of uh, Tikvah, the son of Harris, keeper of the wardrobe. That's a good job, isn't it, ladies? Who would like that job? Keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelled in Jerusalem in the college and they communed with her. And she said unto them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man that sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burnt incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, which sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, as touching the words which thou hast heard, because thine heart was tender, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord, when thou heard what I spoke against this place, and against inhabitants thereof, that thou should become a desolation and a curse, and hast rent thy clothes, and wept before me, I also have heard thee, says the Lord. Behold, therefore, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace, and thine eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. And they brought the king word again. Now, just to mention here, because we're told this 
prophecy, this promise, is that Josiah will be gathered in peace. In other words, he'd die in peace. Now, actually, he dies, as we'll see in just a moment, at the hands of Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. You may not think that's peace, but it was a time of peace. They weren't actually at war, not by an invading army or anything else. Let's just conclude Josiah's life. And the king sent, and they gathered unto him all the elders of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. He gathers everybody together, and he reads God's word to them. And the king stood by a pillar, and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes and all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people stood to the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal and for the grove, and for the host of heaven, and he burned them without Jerusalem, outside of the city, in the fields of Kidron, and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. And he put down the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense. Now, you remember when, right way back at the beginning, Jeroboam, the king of Judah, sorry, king of Israel, first king of Israel, as the nations divide, he kind of sets up anyone a priest. He's kind of priests to us. If you fancy go, just just come on, give it a go. And so now, many years later, he puts down those idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places round about Jerusalem, them also that burned incense unto Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the planets and to all the host of heaven. And he brought out the grove from the house of the Lord without Jerusalem, unto the brook Kidron, and burned it at the brook brook Kidron, and stamped it small into powder, and cast the powder thereof upon the graves of the children of the people. And he broke down the houses of the Sodomites that were by the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the grove. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah, and defiled the high places where the priests had burnt incense, from Geba to Beersheba, and broke down the high places of the gates that were in the entering in the, in, of the gates of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on a man's left hand at the gates of the city. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places came not up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they did eat of the unleavened bread among their brethren and defiled Topher. Sorry, and he defiled Topher, which is in the valley of the children of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Molech which was a practice that the pagans had done. And he took away the horses that the kings of Judah had given to the sun at the entering in of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the suburbs, and burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And all the, and the altars that were on the top of the upper chamber uh, of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, did the king beat down and broke them, sorry, and, and broke them down from thence, and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the high places that were before Jerusalem, which were on the right hand of the mount of corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had builded for Ashtaroth, 
the abomination of the Zidonians and for Chemosh, the, the Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites and for Milcom, the abomination of the children of Ammon, did the king defile. And he broke in pieces the images and cut down the groves and filled their places with the bones of men. It was just this king that was just so intent on ridding the land of anything that was ungodly. Verse 15 carries on. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, had made both that altar and the high place he broke down and burned the high place and stamped it small to powder and burned the grove. And as Josiah turned himself, he spied the sepulchres that were there in the mount and sent and took the bones out of the sepulchres, out of the graves, and burned them upon the altar and polluted it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Now this is incredible, because we are 300 plus years on now from those original events when Jeroboam had set up that altar. Way back in 1 Kings 13, there was this prophecy given. Remember that prophet that went to speak to Jeroboam? Jeroboam was about to strike him and his arm locks in position and Eventually the prophet prays for him. That prophet ends up getting eaten by a lion on the way home. Do you remember he goes, he's not. He's supposed to go straight back to, to Judah, he doesn't. Another prophet entices him home and so on. We looked at all that way back. Well this is the prophecy that that first prophet gave. He said, and behold, this was to Jeroboam. There came a man out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. And upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places and burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt on thee. The incredible thing is, Josiah doesn't seem to be aware of this. Again, over 300 years before the event, that was prophesied. Not only the, what would take place, but the name of the child that would be born. This is one of the reasons that we love scripture and we rely on scripture. You think, who's going to be ruling this country in 300 years time? Well, probably Jesus Christ from Jerusalem, but that's aside. If the Lord tarries, who would be the prime minister in 300 years time? Would we still have a system of government like we do now? Who would be the American president in 300 years' time? Could you give me his name? You see, it's foolish for us to even try and attempt to do something like that. And yet time and time again in his word, God reveals the future before it happens. And once again, there's a big difference between prophecy and prediction. As we said before, we can predict something. It's an educated guess about what might be. We try and predict the weather, and normally it's cold and wet. We normally get that right. But that's just purely an educated guess. Prophecy is not a prediction. Prophecy is the future recorded in advance. And the only way that can be done is by somebody who is outside of time. And God says that he is outside of time. He knows the end from the beginning. And here, this incredible prophecy. And then we read... Then he said, what title is that I see? Now this is Josiah, as he's just destroyed all these altars and burnt these bones on there. And he just sees a kind of a plaque somewhere. And the men of the city told him, and said, oh, it's the sepulchre of the man of God, which came from Judah, and proclaim these things that thou hast done against the altar of Bethel. <laughs> and Josiah's going, sorry, the things I've done. And no doubt, scurrying, trying to look through the archives, looking at this prophecy, and suddenly realising that these events that he was doing there and then, had all been prophesied before. 
And so Josiah says, let him alone. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet that came out of Samaria. That was the second prophet also, was buried in the same place. And all the houses also of the king, sorry, of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger, Josiah took away and did to them according to all the acts that he had done in Bethel. And he slew all the priests of the high places that were there upon the altars and burned men's bones upon them and returned to Jerusalem. And the king commanded all the people saying, keep the Passover unto the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of this covenant. Surely there was not holding such a Passover from the days of the judges that judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel, nor in the kings of Judah, but in the 18th year of King Josiah, wherein this Passover was sold unto the Lord in Jerusalem. So finally they get back to celebrating the Passover. Moreover, the workers with familiar spirits and the wizards and the images and the idols and all the abominations that were spied in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem did Josiah put away, that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Neither after him arose there any king like him. What an incredible statement of this Josiah. Now, to clarify, I think this is in reference to the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, because David seemingly is set apart from this comparison. But there was certainly no other king of Israel or Judah there was anything like Josiah in what he did. Notwithstanding, the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah, because of the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah out, also out of this, my sight, as I have removed Israel, and will cast off this city Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said my name shall be there. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there is a lot more detail in the Chronicles as well about Josiah. And in his days, Pharaoh king of Egypt, went up against the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. This is strange. Because Pharaoh's going against the Assyrians. And then we read, and King Josiah went out against him. That's just bizarre because... Pharaoh was going against Israel's enemy. You'd think Josiah would sit back and let him go. But instead, Josiah goes out against him. Now, what we're not told here is that at this point, Pharaoh Necho seemingly has the Ark of the Covenant. And the priests of Israel are carrying it for Pharaoh Necho. Pharaoh Necho actually makes a statement that God is with him. And it seems that Josiah wants to go out to capture the Ark and put it back in the temple. He makes that plea to the priest. You read it in Chronicles. But then as a result of this battle, which seemingly the Lord had not called Josiah to, we read that uh, King Necho slew him at Megiddo when he had seen him. And his servants carried him in a chariot, dead from Megiddo, and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own sepulchre. And the people of the land took Jehoaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's stead. Jehoaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. See, once again, we just go back, don't we, to 
That's the way it was. According to all that his fathers had done, and Pharaoh Necho put him in bands at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he put the land to a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. So Necho now takes this next king, this son of Josiah, and takes him back to Jerusalem. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah king, in the room of Josiah, his father, and turned his name to Jehoiakim, and took Jehoaz away. So he takes him back to Egypt. And he came to Egypt and he died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give money according to the commandment of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land, of everyone according to his taxation, to give it unto Pharaoh Necho. Now this is the point that Israel starts to really come under Gentile rule. It will get worse and worse up until the time that we'll see very soon that Nebuchadnezzar will come against them. So we've got Josiah. He dies in battle against Pharaoh Necho. For three months his son Jehoaz is king, but then Pharaoh Necho comes back, takes him captive to Egypt. Jehoiakim then is established as the next king. Eliakim is his real name, but Pharaoh changed it to Jehoiakim. Reigns 11 years. Okay, And then we find that following him, we have another king, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, also known as Jeconiah. He reigns for just three months and is taken to Babylon. Upon this king, a blood curse is placed, and we'll talk more about that next time. And so then the final king of Judah, Zedekiah, comes to the throne. He's appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. He reigns for 11 years. Finally, he rebels. And then in 587, we get the final siege of Jerusalem as Jerusalem falls to the Gentile powers. And really, the times of the Gentiles begin. Now, we'll look a lot of these dates over the coming weeks um, because it's at this siege here, the first siege of Jerusalem in 606 BC, that Daniel is taken away. And we'll be looking more at the life of Daniel shortly, I believe. But just to conclude this chapter, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebuda, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. What a lamentable end to this run of kings. But once again, the, the bits of encouragement to take out of this are that even somebody who has rejected God their whole life can still turn back to God. Never give up praying. Never give up hope. And again, particularly as grandparents, think about that influence you can have on your grandchildren. Because I want, my life, for one, is testimony to the great effect of that. And Josiah is another one from Scripture that we can see whose life was so influenced by that input from his granddad. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that... This is relevant to us, Lord, right where we are. Father, we are aware that so often in our own lives we are guilty of putting pagan altars right alongside the place where you should be worshipped alone. Father, help us not to allow anything else to compete for our time or attention instead of you. But Lord, to put you first in our life, to worship you with all our heart, our soul, our mind and our strength. Father, we just... Thank you for the example we see of people like Josiah. They went to such extreme lengths to go throughout the land, getting rid of everything that would cause offence to you. Lord, we were singing earlier, I surrender all. Lord, in response to that, may we look at our lives and go through every part of our lives and get rid of everything that is not pleasing to you. 
Because, Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to be those that bear the light of Christ to this world in which we live, while the time still remains. Lord, we just ask these things now, in Jesus' name. Amen.